Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Alva. I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss the planned easing of restrictions over Christmas. And you ask us about the Grenfell Inquiry. So we've promised this was coming for a while, that we would talk about the UK government's plans for the easing of restrictions around Christmas. I think it's already been clear from offhand comments in other episodes that we think it's maybe not the best idea but we haven't spoken about it at length yet and of course this comes as there's quite a lot of speculation today we're recording on Monday morning that London could soon be placed into tier three restrictions with cases rising in lots of parts of London. Anush, should I, I'll start with you. These plans for three households to, to bubble up over Christmas with no travel restrictions for a short period over, over Christmas, that, that came out a few weeks ago, but we haven't talked about it yet. Mm-hmm. What was your initial reaction when you heard about that announcement? Well, I wasn't surprised that that was the announcement. I think it was sort of the people-pleasing element of it was in keeping with, I think, the way that the government has approached the pandemic from the start. So, you know, over the summer, there was the eat out to help out policy. And there's always been this pull between trying to stop the virus from spreading, but also trying to sort of keep people happy or, or sort of delay conflict between the government and their own backbenchers rather than, you know, really to do with public opinion, because we still know that public opinion is weighted towards, you know, wanting a stricter restrictions and and being generally sympathetic towards lockdown style responses. So it is more to do with that kind of political conflict rather than with public attitudes. But of course, you know, there's that side of Boris Johnson's character that sort of wants to rescue Christmas and wants you to hug granny and you know these things that sound good on the front pages of the daily mail so i wasn't very surprised that that was the response but it was interesting because you know so many of the voices including ministers and government scientists have been extremely reluctant to sort of encourage it haven't they and they kind of rode back on it basically in the same breath as announcing it so we know that it's probably not the best idea in terms of controlling the virus. And as well as that, it's acting as a barrier to sensible policies. So now that we have cases and hospitalizations rising rapidly in London, and and it's expected that London is going to go into tier three restrictions, and actually probably by the time many of our listeners are listening, listening to this, what I'm saying might be out of date. But one of the things that may have been holding the government back from doing that is it just doesn't really make very much sense to go into stricter restrictions, only for them to be lifted 
completely for three households, you know, being together for a few days the week after next. So it's just it, that doesn't really make it very much sense. So I can see why there's been that toing and froing over whether to change what's going on in London. And to be honest, as far back as when they introduced the new renewed tier system at the end of November, it was clear that there was a significant overlap in what was happening in many London boroughs and the places in other parts of the country that had been allocated to tier three. Our data team did a really good graphic of this where it shows certain boroughs, especially Havering and Redbridge, Tower Hamlets, Barking and Dagenham were way ahead on the scale in terms of, you know, positivity rates and and hospitalization levels than many, like a, a good bulk of the places that have been put in tier three. So I think there's been that sort of strange delay in doing what makes sense because you have this looming period of many of the restrictions being lifted for everyone. And so I think not only is is it a questionable policy in terms of controlling the virus and, and stopping January from being a very, very grim month potentially, but it also has affected the other restrictions that the government has been contemplating in the build up to that period. The thing I found deeply kind of weird about the Christmas stuff, right, is obviously we, we've covered a lot of things that we've believed to be slow-running car crashes. But I think this feels like the first time that I've covered something where it's just like, this isn't even a slow-running car crash. <laughs> it's just kind of visibly, obviously, a bad idea. Because, like, yeah, as, as like, the day's TP shows, right, like, like the, the only reason to run London hot, as it were, is because... We have a younger population here. We have slightly more bed capacity. And therefore, you know, to put it this morbidly, right, you can, you can have a lot more prevalence and a, a lot more cases. And actually, to be honest, double point, a lot more deaths before you get to a point where hospitals have to start putting we're closed signs up. Parking for a moment the, the moral reasons and indeed, actually, the economic reasons why I don't think that, that is a good approach, even if you somehow buy into the idea that that is. We've always been planning to diffuse millions of people from London, which yeah is a net importer of people the, the rest of the year and therefore is a net exporter of people at Christmas through this like, I mean, I think the, the one upside of the government's plans is I think a lot of people aren't following it. Like a lot of people will have very sensibly left earlier, whereas like the travel window is like someone going, I know, so this thing, which is a bad idea. Is there some way we could potentially maximise how bad it could be? Because if you're not aware of what the travel window is, um, it seemed unlikely, but I've, I feel I've, I've come, gone down this thing of trying to explain it. So I'm, this idea that people will be able to travel only between the 23rd and the 27th, it's just like a thing where it's just like, you know, like, is this plan sponsored by the coronavirus? The whole thing is so obviously insane that... I mean, it I, is literally like the government telling people, hey, everybody, you should all travel on the 23rd slash Christmas Eve and you should all travel back from where you've been on the 27th how about everyone get on get on your trains on your buses all at the same time for a jolly holiday like don't don't try to spread that out let's just you know do it in one one big push in terms of Northern Ireland I don't think that there would be planes enough for Northern Irish people to all fly home in that tiny window so from a logistical level which you've written about before Stephen on a logistical level as well as a sort of virus spreading level it's it's a really mad policy it's sort of like a macro version of the original 10 p.m curfew 
I'm sure you've both experienced this firsthand as well, but just sort of everyone spilling out at exactly the same time and just standing in the street outside to the extent where you're sort of pressing against each other when you're getting through the door at the end because the pub is so desperate to to get you out by the time it's supposed to. It just It's just these sort of things that are not practically thought through but are thought to sound like a good compromise. I mean, I've been very interested in this question being a Northern Irish person in London and also, I suppose, in an age demographic because I'm younger than the two of you. I think that I'm in an age demographic where people, you know, in their early or mid-20s don't tend to still live with their parents but maybe live with flatmates or with strangers or in sort of housing arrangements that like don't necessarily feel like home, even if you like the people that you live with. And so it's a whole chunk of people who sort of expect to go home for Christmas, a bit like students, which there is a lot of foresight on and provision for in terms of the window for them traveling being much bigger and and testing being provided. But I think it just means that I've been particularly conscious of it. And for full disclosure, I got the first chopper out of London after <laughs> after the lockdown and have been self-isolating in Belfast for the past nearly two weeks but I think that in some ways it's actually I don't know if the two of you agree I think it's one of the most interesting policy questions that we're facing because near the start of the pandemic none of us were really very well placed to examine the government's decisions mm. and even in terms of a circuit break or something a lot of the advice on that was retrospective. So we were getting the sage minutes and Keir Starmer was making various policy demands, but but we weren't really having it in real time. Whereas I think on this one, you can really see anyone can look at this and, and sort of think about whether the government is making the right call on it or not. And I think I wrote about it a few weeks ago and I, and I think I sort of understand the, I was speaking to, people in Downing Street also from a personal capacity where I was thinking you know in in mid-November oh will I be able to go home for Christmas and all my friends Mm. are wondering if they'll be able to go home for Christmas and I was speaking to someone in Downing Street about it at that point and they were absolutely firm that people will be able to go home for Christmas that they didn't have the details firmly decided at that point but it was just a certainty that the government wouldn't stand in the way of people going home and that person from Downing Street who isn't actually from the UK was determined to go home for Christmas but was going to isolate for two weeks at the other end but I think at that point you could kind of understand the government thinking that maybe if people were anecdotally saying that they were prepared to break the rules to see their family for Christmas that maybe they should make some provision for people doing that as safely as possible but actually the polling seems to suggest that that isn't really the case that as we had more detail about the various options as you mentioned Anush it does seem like most people would prefer to not have a sort of quote-unquote normal Christmas um, than to have much tighter restrictions in January and that's you know and that's separate from the question of rather than thinking of it as a trade-off just you know whether it's sensible to to do that at all at the risk of higher deaths and infections and the impact on the NHS so it, it seems like potentially a misreading of the public mood on that one and so it does mean that we're in a kind of strange situation where, like you were saying, Stephen, people are making their own minds up about what they're doing for Christmas. And basically, in most cases, people are differing slightly 
from the government's advice like me or are sort of being much tougher than the rules suggest but I think one of the biggest examples that we've had of sort of personal decision making coming into it because we can see this potentially disastrous government decision coming down the line a lot of people are judging that it's probably not a sensible policy certainly it's at odds with what most other European countries are doing this Christmas including you know Germany and the Republic of Ireland but it means that people for the first time have to sort of go above and beyond the government rules to decide what is corona safe and in that way I think that I suppose there are two things on it I suppose firstly that it's it's just another area where the sort of the privilege divides of coronavirus are really in evidence because I'm certainly very aware that I've been able to still work from home and self-isolate for two weeks. And I think that lots of people who are still planning on seeing their families over Christmas time plan on self-isolating for two weeks before they do so. But that is just an option not available to lots of people who keep the economy running, working in supermarkets or, or delivery jobs or taxi drivers or just so many people don't have that option available to them. What I think the Christmas thing sums up is like the government's inability slash unwillingness to acknowledge that the coronavirus is not fair, perhaps because once you've acknowledged the reasons why the coronavirus is not fair, then it has implications for the rest of your governing agenda, right? In the, the most COVID-safe thing for people to do, if they were going to celebrate Christmas in a semi-normal way, is to have left the second the national lockdown ended. Obviously, that is not an option. Yeah, like just the thing that I found slightly surreal about this whole experience is before I worked in journalism, I worked in retail. I uh, was talking with a friend of mine from those days who who still still works in the book trade uh, about you know I was like you know how's 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 it been how are people going in and they were like oh you know actually all right because like lots of people want to support they work in India now lots of people want to support the shop so but we were talking about the Christmas thing and like there are no circumstances when I I mean, obviously sound different because I'm also from this city but there are no circumstances in which I would have gone home having like been at the epicenter of a super spreading event i being in a shop that had been open doing its christmas trade for the however many weeks before now of course there are no circumstances in which i would go home because i am you know lucky enough not to live alone or with strangers and although i am starting to grow slightly tired of the wallpaper in this flat it doesn't feel to me like there is a in terms of like the kind of mental health social responsibility but like if the government thinking was people are going to do it anyway then they should have actively encouraged and cajoled businesses i mean god knows there's a lot of this encouraging and cajoling for people to return to offices to say look if, if logistically your employees can work from home you should be encouraging them to transition gradually over the christmas period right which is slash was the safest way for people to to do something you know kind of normal which obviously like does create unfairnesses but yeah it's this like weirdness all event at this stage where like the conservative government has decided that the the one time that these like unfairnesses of market outcomes and birth are so iniquitous and you have to rewrite public policy in order to to equalize those outcomes is when doing so has literally deadly consequences i mean it's just the whole thing is ridiculous. And, and it comes back to the original sin, I think, of the coronavirus laws, which is, you know, kind of this refusal to 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 not, instead of go like, you know, socialise with due care and attention, don't socialise. I essentially do what we do with almost every legislation to kind of do a, let's try and predict every possible outcome and criminalise or not criminalise some of them. 
which then leads you with this yeah weird situation where like yeah the worst thing that could possibly happen would be a large number of people going okay i've been told that i should board the first train out on the 23rd or the 24th and that's what i'll do i think it's also the thing i find remarkable is you might disagree with this but i think it's how little political pressure is necessary to force the government into this position i mean we know that there are lots of people on the government's backbenches who have increasing concerns about the tiered system and about restrictions in general and who would be fiercely opposed to cancelling Christmas as it would be seen and certainly there would be large parts of the media that would also strongly object and the government was coming under pressure months ago to save Christmas and Boris Johnson given the kind of politician that he is clearly wants to be the kind of politician who saves Christmas but I think it is just quite remarkable that you know, rather than even attempting to just make the case against, you know, if if you judge that people might break the rules anyway, because they're so determined to have a Christmas, which, you, which we don't even know is the case from polling. I mean, if anything, polling suggests otherwise. But if you really think that that's the case, why not as a government try to <laughs> try to tell people why not to do that? Try and, why not try to tell them not to and make the case and, and sort of change hearts and minds on that rather than just thinking, oh, well, if people have decided, then then that's what we're going to do. You know, I think that that's that's sort of definitionally following rather than leading. And certainly even the sort of the limited discussion that we had around the options for that in terms of higher restrictions in in January and so on all seemed to indicate a level of public understanding of this and the Mm trade-offs that seemed to think that this wasn't really entirely necessary and I, I think also it points to a problem which a lot of governments have had whereby their messaging has operated on the level of rules and what you sort of legally can and can't do which means that then people rather than thinking about what's safe and what isn't and what they're comfortable doing and how they can mitigate risk in their personal interactions just think in terms of what they legally can and can't do and what's in the rules and what isn't and you know there's been there was a really good piece on this months ago in the Irish Times about how there needed to be a much more sophisticated public conversation around risk. I mean, and that's in the Republic of Ireland, which now has the lowest incidence rates in Europe because of its recent approach. But even there, this public health expert was sort of making the case that if, for example, wearing a mask or staying two meters apart or doing all of those sort of mitigating things, maybe that's a a tenth of the risk of just sitting indoors really close to somebody. Ultimately, if you do that 10 times, that's the same risk as, as sitting really close to somebody. And so rather than thinking about safe or unsafe in terms of, you know, sitting apart with a mask on safe, sitting close with no mask, unsafe, People need to sort of be thinking about risk in the round and about reducing their social contacts in the round and so on. And so making their interactions safer, but also thinking in terms of how the safest thing is to to be having fewer of those interactions. There were lots of other examples in the piece about sort of the discussions we needed to be having around behavior. And we just haven't really been having those. And it's like Mark Drakeford said when the circuit breaker lifted in Wales, that if people just think about 
the rules and think on the level of what they legally can and can't do, you won't have a robust virus response. It's more about people taking personal responsibility and, and weighing things up for themselves. But basically, I, I just think that because we haven't had that at all in the UK, or certainly not from the British government, it means that at this late stage, it's very strange that we're having this sudden drop in the level of restrictions and rules and people are having to think about their own level of personal responsibility and weighing it up. But sort of the government hasn't equipped people terribly well for that. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon and leaders of devolved administrations are encouraging people to think things through a little bit before Christmas. And even Boris Johnson has slightly. But I, I don't think that the government has paved the way for that kind of decision making. And, and you know, it's sort of passing the buck onto individuals at a very late stage in our virus response. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. Us. We've had a concisely worded question this week, simply Grenfell Inquiry question mark, which is well-timed because Anoush, you've written a brilliant piece about the outcome of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry. Can you just sort of tell us about the key findings of the Grenfell Inquiry so far and, and what your piece discusses? Sure. Okay. Well, I think I think the the questions formulation from our from our you ask us question is is quite telling in itself because it sort of shows that people don't really know what to ask about it, and that's revealing of how it's sort of been chugging along under the radar, particularly in a year like this. So at the moment we're in module two of phase two of the Grenfell inquiry. So phase one was done in 2018, and the findings came out from that phase in 2019 in October. And that was about the events on the night. So it was very much focused on the emergency service response, on sort of the building's layout and landlord's responsibilities, central government responsibilities. And, and there were 46 recommendations from that part of the inquiry that have been recommended. And, and Boris Johnson has agreed in principle to institute all all of those recommendations. But so far, the going's been slow. I think just four out of the 46 have been implemented in full. And all of those are to do with what emergency services can do differently. And I think you might, you both might remember there was a fire safety bill in Parliament in September, and actually Conservative MPs voted against an amendment 
which was seeking to legislate for some of the recommendations. So, for example, sharing the design of, of a building with the local fire service, carrying out regular inspections on flat doors and lifts and other parts of the building and ensuring that there were evacuation plans for residents. Those things haven't haven't been tacked onto the fire safety bill yet. So the process of implementing those original recommendations from the first phase of the inquiry has been quite slow going. And then we've had this, the beginning of phase two, which has been this year, and that's gone completely, I'd say, under the radar. I mean, there are places covering the the events, but of course, coronavirus and also the latest Brexit countdown have drowned out some of the findings. And, and to be honest, the findings in this part of the inquiry, which focuses on the materials used on the on the refurbishment of Grenfell T- Tower and how they were tested, how they were approved and advertised and sold and ended up being part of the refurbishment project. This part has probably revealed the most shocking things so far. So essentially, the manufacturer of the cladding and the two manufacturers of the insulation on the exterior of the building for its refurbishment, all of those materials have been under question for how valid the fire safety tests were on those materials and how they were marketed to the people working on on the refurbishment. So that's the main thing. And that doesn't maybe sound particularly sexy, but it's basically means that we have all of these internal emails from from these companies that that were manufacturing these products essentially acknowledging that some of the marketing materials were manipulated the fire t- safety test for one of the insulation products by a company called Celatex um was actually rigged to make it more likely that it would pass the the fire test so there were magnesium oxide panels included in in that fire test which are non-combustible, so so they basically helped it to pass. And those magnesium oxide, that board was not included on, on, on the fire test report, so that was misleading. And there's been some amazing testimony from, from people who work there. So a, a guy who was 22 at the time in his first job, he said that he was being made to lie for commercial gain. And not to sort of show off about my writing, but I just encourage listeners who haven't been following this just to just to read the piece that we've put out on it, because it sort of sums up a lot of the shocking evidence from people within these companies about sort of the way that they were they were marketing these these products and, and trying to shoehorn them into passing fire tests that would mean they would be safe for over 18 meter buildings, which is sort of the high rise test. And I should say that the, the companies like Celatex, who I just mentioned, deny wrongdoing and responsibility for, for what happened at Grenfell Tower. It is, it is a fantastic piece and I would strongly urge everyone to read. It's obviously health warning will make you very angry. And so I, I've been following the the hearings as and when I can, because even though, well, it's just in a slightly weird stage where at the moment it's your beat and it will continue to be your beat, but I've known that it will swing back into mine at some point. Yeah, yeah. I must, I must say, I, I actually, I, I would urge readers, you don't have to, people shouldn't feel that they have to come up with a, an actual question. If there's just a topic they would like, something question mark is quite a nice jumping off point. One of the things which has made it harder for it to, for it to sort of have as much kind of currency is that precisely then it's at its kind of most legally difficult stage. Mm-hmm. I find it hard to imagine from having listened in, and I think anyone who reads your piece of news will find it hard to imagine, that at the end of this process, at least one company will not have a situation where the report then goes, this was akin to corporate manslaughter. I find it hard to see from having listened in on the 
many of the hearings how the kind of unofficial final phase of this report will be various residents and other organisations suing various organisations for what happened. And I just find it very hard to conceive of a situation just based on what we've heard already, where those cases won't be successful. And of course, Mm. as everyone will have seen, like, the second that someone like loses a court case on this kind of thing, and then suddenly like a bunch of people like, oh, well, now we can say this thing and we wanted to say for for a while. Yeah. To me, the thing which continues to to newly shock me every single time, despite the fact it's just, it's not, I mean, maybe it is new, but it's not new, I think, if you've been following this story at all, is that in in your mind, you hear the word fire safety test, and you kind of assume that at some point, someone who does not work for a company turns up, you know, with some matches and some gasoline and tries to set it on fire. (laughs) And I think, like, that's the kind of, like, the important kind of, yeah, kind of, the thing I think that 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 I hope will be politically advocated for afterwards, it just feels to me the really clear story, and I just don't see why this is remotely surprising to anyone, but it clearly is, is that if the person whose whose job relies on the organization successfully selling the product is the person in charge of adjudicating its fire safety, it probably won't be fire safe. And we actually know, right, then that is that is not just true of high rises. That true that is true of like, you know, if you're listening to this on your sofa, that is probably true of your sofa. And yeah, one of the things I continue to find a bit frustrating and painful about some of the like, and obviously like there's people like Inside Housing doing like really brilliant coverage of this, but there's like mm. a certain type of like reductive housing. And obviously I have like a massive vested interest here as someone who's like basically lived in a, a block of flats of, of that kind for essentially most of my life. This kind of like flattening of the type of person who lived there. You know, it's just like, like, it's just like, you know, one of the dead was a marketing consultant, guys. It's, yeah, it's, it's bad enough that this, like, insulting neglect happened that led to them dying without, like, people being like, oh, it happened because this person was, you know, like, so ultimately, like, this, this is a story in which, like, many of the victims of the Grenfell Tower fire were poor, but which has, like, far-reaching implications across, you know, not just tower blocks, but as I've said, sofas, I don't know why sofas is the oak, beds. You can really mm-hmm. tell them I'm working from home, can't you? <laughs> yeah. My partner's music stand. Actually, that probably is fireproof. It's made of metal. It's such a huge hammer blow to this kind of like, oh, I'm sure corporations can police themselves. Why do we need the state to do this type of regulation? Because like, the doy, it turns out to be like lethal and dangerous to, to make people responsible for marking their own homework. Yeah, exactly. Marking their own homework is a good way of putting it. So there are these independent bodies that certify and, you know, um, carry out the fire tests for for these products. But a lot of the stuff that's come out of the inquiry in this in this stage of it has has shown that there are a lot of problems with the way that they do certify the products. So there was one example where a body called the Local Authority Building Control was assessing the fire safety of were always asked to certify the fire safety of, of Celotex's insulation, which was used on Grenfell Tower. And it took the sort of marketing bump from, from one of the salesmen of it word for word and put it in the certificate. And you know it's word for word because it even included his typo. And of course, this body would say that it was it was misled by by the company and it relies a lot on the manufacturer's honesty. So, you know, there is a question over over where the fault lies. But you're totally right. There's a problem with the way that the industry is set up and the checks and balances on these manufacturers, which does show up the fact that 
there isn't proper or, or, or strong regulation. And even the building regulations can be interpreted in different ways as well. So there's all sorts of weaknesses in the system. And like you say, Stephen, it really, really does matter to everyone. You know, this isn't this isn't just a case of corporations trying to extract as much wealth out of a, a poor area or, or, or one tower block where, where lots of people lived who, who might not have as much cultural cachet as people who own their own houses or whatever. Like you say, it was there was a diverse picture of people living in that building. And also the government is planning on building back better, isn't it? It's planning on, on infrastructure projects, house building. It wants to loosen planning regulations so that it can accelerate house building. It wants to do green refurbishments on housing. How on earth can it do all of these things unless the findings from this inquiry, whatever they will be, are taken seriously? And also all of these plans that the government has for building affect everyone. Um, and if we don't have a safe system for it, then everyone should care about this. And it's it's not just one story about one fire that happened on, on one night. And yeah, it is a really brilliant piece of work and, and a really important inquiry. And I think, yeah, the, if you read, yeah, the, the thing I would say, genuinely would say this if it was a piece on someone else's website, if you haven't been following this, and it's understandable because, you know, it's a deeply upsetting and angering topic and you want to get up to speed, then I think, like, the piece you've written is just, like, a brilliant encapsulation of, of, of the key things. The thing it really reminded me of as well, actually, was um, obviously I've been rereading the McPherson Inquiry mm. this year because I'm doing this thing about racial inclusivity within the Jewish community. So I have reread every report on racial inclusivity and, and diversity. And there's a, a, one of the things McPherson talks about is the Metropolitan Police's canteen culture. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, the stuff that people just kind of say and sort of accept as the default. And the thing that I really thought of reading your piece and just seeing all of the stuff together in one place in a kind of condensed period as opposed to hearing it in hearings in between other things, it was the canteen culture, this kind of like lol, fire test didn't go well, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And yeah. I think like that, that to me is like the most shocking and the most important thing to fix is a situation where the kind of canteen culture of self-regulation was kind of like to not regulate. And obviously, yeah, with the important thing, yeah, that many the organisations involved deny wrongdoing. And although I think it is unlikely that every organisation involved will not have some kind of sanction, I, I'm sure some of them, some of them won't. But I think it is ultimately the, the failure of self-regulation is like the big and really important story of, of, of the inquiry so far. And I think a lot of people listening will find that really interesting because I used to live around there and I used to go on the walks the monthly remembrance walks for Grenfell and this was a very sad and very political story from the very beginning and it was immediately interpreted as this sort of big horrific monument to the conditions that people were living under under conservative austerity and certainly the feeling on those walks was that this was a a conservative problem and certainly the politics I mean they're very sort of sad events remembering all of the different people who used to live in that tar block and who were so crucial to that community but there's a definite political underpinning and a political interpretation of that event as well as as you say systemic mismanagement and systemic failures and and certainly the widespread interpretation is is it, that it's also a story of systemic racism or institutional racism. And I think that it'll be clarifying for some people that the, I mean, regardless of those other things, because we haven't touched on those, but one of the big threads coming through that hasn't always been present is is that this 
is revealing of a huge systemic problem, but it's the one that the two of you have been identifying above above all of, of sort of corporate greed or corporate mismanagement, systemic failures in certain corporations' responsibilities to the to the people that they are serving and selling their products to. And I mean, Grenfell will just loom large as one of these huge, very symbolic moments of the 2010s and I think we'll keep interpreting it but this is a sort of newer interpretation that's coming to the fore and that will slightly be refining people's top lessons that people are taking from this. There's that focus on profit making but then of course there's the austerity is a big part of the story so why did they swap out zinc panels for aluminium composite panels to save £300,000 on this refurbishment you know so that, that there are aspects of it where where money saving was was put above safety where you wonder where that comes from and of course it's it's because there's not as much money in local authorities as there used to be so authority is definitely part of the story yeah and i tell you someone who found found a lot of the i would say quite glib commentary about grenfell quite upsetting to be honest because like I mean, one, because like I just think it's incredibly revealing, these people who are like, who like basically what they're going is like, ah, oh, people who live in council houses, we all know about them, they're all black and poor. Congratulations, you've certainly revealed something about politics. But actually, like, the underlying story of, of, of that we're seeing in the inquiry, and actually, I think was, was actually fairly clear from, if you read the blogs of the Tenants Residents Association, if you look at it right from the off, was a failure of regulation of the kind of like whether you want to call it the Thatcherite model or the neoliberal uh, model. But actually, the 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 central thing is the the kind of peeling back of state regulation. And as Anoush says, right, austerity is part of the story of why other councils are in. So so one of the things we've kind of been lucky. There is no reason why we haven't had a Grenfell Tower style situation in student housing, much of which has got this kind of the same sort of like polyethene cladding and that may be problematic on it the only reason that hasn't happened is luck and in, in all of those like near misses austerity is a much bigger part of the story right like why is it that new housing developers and local councils and universities like have a pile and high sell them cheap approach to student accommodation well it's because they've had huge cuts to their direct grants and they're desperately looking to to find and make money elsewhere in some ways, Kensington and Council is, is such a weird situation because right, they weren't cash strapped. But in some ways, also these councils, you know, these these conservative councils in London, which have like been considered like these flagships for how you can do more with less, right? In some ways, that both is and isn't the austerity story. It's not the story of austerity because that doing more with less wasn't about a restriction in grants or a local authority having less money. But it is about it because the argument then underpins like oh well it's fine that we've taken this council's direct grant yeah we've cut this council's direct grant is this idea that these councils were a successful model of municipal government yeah and you know the the evidence than 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 it wasn't is yeah quite literally however many meters high you've been listening to the new states and podcast with me stephen bush and my colleagues anush shikalian and stephen bush We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.